Hello there. Here we are again, I hope. I say that because you may not realize this is just one of a series of episodes, each one with a different guest and a slightly different topic. If you're new to the Price of Pain podcast, welcome. I encourage you to check out some of our other episodes and see if anything catches your interest. And for those who already have, welcome back. We're doing our best to bring awareness to pain research and pain treatment, but also provide some content for you nerds out there like me who like to pass the time by learning something new. Speaking of, you're about to hear my conversation with assistant professor, Dr. Emily Bartley. She's a clinical psychologist and the director of the Aspire Lab at the University of Florida. While it may be nothing new to hear that it's healthy to be positive, Dr. Bartley's actually using positivity and hope as a treatment for pain. She's a fun guest to have on. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. But first, how about this new intro graphic that Kat put together? Just one step closer to digitally enhancing my hairline. All right, Kat, let's get to it. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. Yeah, so how long have you been in Price? I guess I never really asked you that. I got here in 2012. Okay, Mm -hmm. all right. And um, when you first got here, did you do do a postdoc here also? I did. Uh, There was a, a same T32. It wasn't called what it is now. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a translational pain science, and it was under um, Dr. Bob Yazierski. So he was the program director for that. So I I came in um, at that time and did a two-year postdoc. Where did it from? Uh, Where I came from? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was actually on internship at Duke Medical Center uh, prior to transitioning down here to Florida. And then prior to that, I was in grad school at um, the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. Okay. Mm-hmm. And is that, is, so wh- the, where's the connection with you and Dr. Pallet? Where, where did that, because we that to, started before here, right? Yes, yes. We went to graduate school together at okay. TU. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she started out in the laboratory, um, I'm not exactly certain what year, but she was an undergrad, mm-hmm. and then decided to pursue a PhD and then stayed in the laboratory at that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And so tell me about Duke a little bit. I, these are things, again, that, that, Despite working together, I don't think I've ever asked you about. So why not do it now? Yeah. So so for part of my degree in clinical psychology, we have to do a one-year internship. And because I was interested in pain sciences, I tried to find an internship that would allow me to work in the field of chronic pain because there's a lot of variety across internship sites. And so um, I'd been interested in Duke for quite some time. Frank mm-hmm. Keefe worked there. There was a possibility of being able to work with him on a rotation. And so um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, clinical psychology, like internships, and in terms of how we have to go through that process, but it's like a match. Okay. And so you send off your applications. And then the sites rank you, and then you rank 
these sites after you get interviews. And so it's just a, a matching process. And then you... Like med school, similar to med school. Exactly, yes. Okay. Um, and then you have a day where it's a match day, and then you wake up and you look at your email and you find out if you matched or not. And if so, then where are you going? Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of exciting and anxiety-inducing at the same time. <laughs> so are, are you willing to share? This, this could be a taboo question. Um, I've asked med students before, prior to match day... Uh-huh. You know, and so this is, you know, looking ahead like, oh, well, what's your number one choice? And I've had people say, I can't tell you that. It would jinx it. So retrospectively, was Duke Duke was top... my number one. So you matched with your first choice. That's yes. awesome. Yeah. yeah. How often does that happen in clinical psych? Uh, I'm I'm not exactly certain on the statistics hmm. of that. That's, but, uh... but I would say that, you know, if you are going to match, typically people match within their first, like their top three. Sure, 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 sure. And I think uh-huh. I think med school is pretty much the same way. Um but yeah, I, I, I think it's awesome just having been close to that process with people I know, um, not having to be part of it. It's harrowing, but at the same time, really neat to, to think that there is more than just the application process and the interview process on, whoops, on singular data points that mm-hmm. there's some kind of algorithm that says, okay, you, in comparison to all of the other people who have interviewed here, get ranked. And then you do the same with all the people that you're interviewing. It seems to be a little bit more of a reliable, you're going to end up in the right space for you based on what that space is also looking for. Mm-hmm. Seems like a, a, a really good way to, to progress someone through training, I think. Right. And you want to make certain that you are a good match for the site and they're a good match for you. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't talk about that a whole lot. Um, the whole, I don't think we talk about it enough, I should say. Um, and it's something that with, for example, in my, in my experience with volleyball in college volleyball, that's a big deal. You know, you might say, oh, well, I'm good enough to play at this school. And, and you can put any sport in the place of volleyball. Mm-hmm. I'm good enough to play at this school. So this is where I should go. You know, this is, this is my NCAA division one. I'm that person you know, and don't take into consideration the other factors and also what that place, that school, that program, that team is looking for. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, um, whether they're not honest with themselves or not honest with, you know, where they're going on their visits or interviews, mm-hmm. end up in the, in a place where, yeah, their, their skills fit and their aptitude fits, but maybe facets of their personality don't. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And so it, it ends up being a, a miserable process. Mm-hmm. So, but Duke was your first match. So, what what uh, what about that was, I guess, stands out paramount in in your training and and whatnot. And you said it was an internship, right? Internship, yes. So, what what did you what was the big thing that you took away from Duke uh, prior to to coming to your postdoc here that that still stands out that you utilized the most? If I could put you on the spot. Yeah, I guess um, augmenting my skills in. Um, you know, being a good clinician, especially working with patients with chronic pain. During graduate school, we have to do um, rotations at specific practicum sites. Mm -hmm. And so the ability for me to work directly with patients with chronic pain was somewhat limited during graduate school just due to a lack of accessibility to those specific populations. So internship was really where I was able to kind of delve into that particular population um, and just to kind of hone my clinical repertoire. And was chronic pain an, an interest to you even 
in graduate school, like you had decided at that point, you, this is already where you were headed? Absolutely, yeah. I, I developed my interest working with pain uh, probably prior to uh, kind of pursuing a PhD. So I actually have a, a, a master's degree in clinical psychology separate from my PhD in clinical psychology at a different institution. So it was during that time when I started to uh, express some interest in working in the field of chronic pain. What what sparked that interest? Ah, uh, great question. Um, it was actually probably due to some of my own experiences with pain mm-hmm. that kind of fostered that interest. So, you know, back when I was in uh, graduate school working on my master's degree, I really had an interest in health psychology. And uh, because during my undergraduate degree, I had a, a double major in psychology and biology. And so I'd always knew that I wanted to meld the two um, fields together. And so when I uh, was pursuing my master's degree in clinical psychology, I became interested in health psychology and being able to work with medical populations um, in a psychological perspective. And so um, I actually, um, because of my interest in pain, it really kind of fostered from uh, my experience with endometriosis. Mm. And so um, I think think that's kind of where it began. And then I got accepted to a laboratory that worked with pain psychophysiology. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I really enjoyed it. So I wanted to, you know, keep doing that and knew that my, um, where I saw myself was in the field of pain. That's interesting. I, you know, being relatively new to pain myself, um, you know, I, I'm always intrigued by what is the catalyst to put people on the road specifically to study pain in the way they do. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to pain research and pain treatment, there's, there are pharmacologists that, that don't ever deal with the psychological side of pain and of chronic pain and that, that look for treatments that, that are exogenous, you know, drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, the psychology of pain is, is uh, a, continually growing field and, and with a lot of recent findings. But I think a lot of people, and, and I'm certain that I can speak for our audience as well, a lot of people, that's not their first thought. When you think pain, you think, well, opioids or drugs or physical therapy. Mm-hmm. They don't think to the psychological aspect. So did with your interest, was it with psychology first and then pain or pain then psychology? Or what, what really turned you down that road as far as uh, delving into pain research and treatment? Well, I think psychology came first and foremost in that process. But, you know, I know from my own experiences, but also looking at the experiences of people, patients that I worked with uh, during practicum who also had uh, chronic pain, it, it was at that point that I realized that we can do so much better mm-hmm. in terms of treatment. Um, pain has such a negative connotation to it, even to this day. And I knew that I wanted to be involved in that. And I wanted to be an advocate for people that did have chronic pain to, you know, create awareness um, and to understand it more and to be able to get involved in the treatment aspect so I can help kind of produce, develop better treatments for people so that they can have a better quality of life. So you, you said that there's a, a, 
negative connotation associated with pain. Are you, are you implying that that shouldn't necessarily be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you have to think that we're working with human beings. And, you know, when I talk about a negative connotation, we, we tend, or at least, you know, I think the field may think of chronic pain as, you know, these are the people that are the catastrophizers. Um, and so these are the people where it's difficult to help them because pain is very complex. Mm -hmm. It's not just a physical experience. It's a socio-emotional experience as well. And so when you think about all these factors that can impact pain, um, thinking about the treatment perspective, it, it does become um, a little bit more challenging. And so, um, which probably has is why I kind of shifted some of my research into really appreciating these protective factors, resiliency factors in the midst of chronic pain, um, because it does have such a, a negative perception mm -hmm. of the condition. Do you think that, um, so before we get into resilience, is that something that affects people's, and I think I probably already know the answer to this and, and our listeners can as well, but is that perception and, and how negatively or positively or, or even neutrally and objectively people who are in pain view their pain? Does that affect their pain experience and, and the outcomes of their treatments and how heavily? Yeah. Um, yeah. Pain has a, a huge psychological process to it. And you can imagine that pain produces negative emotions. It's more highly correlated with um, symptoms of depression and anxiety, et cetera. Uh, and on the flip side, you know, there's also this belief that these negative thoughts can also, um, are also associated with chronic pain and severity and disability as well as other outcomes as well. So it has a bi-directional influence to it. Is that what maybe makes the treatment of pain using, you know, pharmacological approaches, drugs and, and whatnot, is that what maybe makes that less effective is the fact that there's just so much else going on? I think so. I, I certainly do think that that's um, a salient factor. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about resilience then. Most of your research currently um, is, is based on resilience. So mm -hmm. in what respect? Obviously, I think a fair amount of people would understand the, the topic of resilience, but how does it relate specifically to pain? Um, so in general, I think the, the field of pain has been inundated with assessing vulnerability and risk factors associated with pain. And I became um, mainly aware of this during my graduate studies and just looking at the literature. And, and during that time, I didn't do a lot of work in the field of resilience. It was only until I transitioned to my postdoctoral fellowship here that I that really started to pique my interest. And just knowing that, you know, working with patients with chronic pain um, during internship and even practicum, you know, I found that certain people tended to do, you know, quite well. Um, they were engaging in activities that they really enjoyed and found meaningful. Um, despite the pain. Despite the okay. pain. Um, and of course, there was a lot of um, individual variability in, in that. Um, you know, some people didn't fare as well. But what I did find is that people with chronic pain had a lot of inherent strengths. 
but you didn't see that a lot in the literature. And so it was during my um, fellowship that I really started to kind of delve into that and, and started to look at processes such as positive affect and optimism and how that can impact the trajectory of pain. Okay. And so it, when you talk about the, the attributes or the aspects that they had, can, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What are, what are some, of the, some of the things even then before you, before you delve uh, very much into your own research, what was already out there on this topic? I mean, did you, did you model your interests or pick up where another researcher left off or is, is some of this um, novel to you? So uh, one of the first projects that I did was a, the development of a hope-based study. That actually stemmed from uh, a research experience that I had in a, a practicum site during my uh, uh, graduate school time. And I was actually working with a clinician that was interested in the concept of hope. And she came from the University of Kansas, where a lot of the original um, work on hopeful thinking um, stemmed from. And so uh, during that research project, we would go to summer camping programs for kids who had various chronic medical conditions, such as end-stage renal disease, cancer, HIV, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we looked at hopeful thinking pre and post this camping experience. And we found that um, hopeful thinking was actually augmented after these kids would kind of transition through um, these uh, various camping experiences. And so um, when I came here, I was that study really stuck with me, and I wanted to do something with that mm -hmm. and to develop an intervention that was based upon hopeful thinking, which um, I'm going to stem from Charles Snyder's work on hope as this goal-oriented process that consists of pathways and agency, which is really essentially... Um, the development of routes or pathways to pursue goals and also the mobilization of efforts to achieve those goals. So you can imagine that some people um, may not be very good at goal setting. Mm -hmm. um, if they are, then there's some people who aren't, they can't visualize the routes to be able to achieve those goals, mm -hmm. which will stunt goal prog progress. Um, or people may be good at thinking about ways to achieve their goals, but maybe they just don't have the energy or they're not able to kind of mobilize those efforts to achieve um, the goals that they set out for themselves. So I actually developed an intervention and it was funded by the American Pain Society. And we looked at that in temporal mandibular disorder. And we developed this three session brief intervention um, based upon the concepts of this hope theory. And um, we found that it was a small pilot study, so mm -hmm. you have to, <clears throat> you know, I always like to caution people on interpreting the results from a pilot study. But, right. but what we found was very promising in that um, we found that uh, quantitative, some quantitative sensory testing measures, such as um, heat pain sensitivity, was actually changed after people went through this um, hope intervention. And then we also found some differences in various psychological factors, such as catastrophizing, uh, that were reduced after going through the hope intervention. And this was compared to people who went through kind of a basic pain education um, treatment. So okay. from that was, that was the starting point for me. And then after that, it just kind of um, burgeoned into different other studies, looking at various mechanisms that may underlie 
resilient processes in chronic pain to now developing more treatment approaches that uh, foster a more of a kind of a, a resilient paradigm. Okay. Uh, well, I want to, I actually want to circle back for a second if I could, because it's really intriguing. So with, with the, this, the concept of hope. So you said that these kids would go to camping experiences mm-hmm. and their, uh, their outlook or their, their hopefulness for their own future, I assume is what you, what you mean is would, mm-hmm. would improve. Were those camps specifically purposed to affect that or was it something about the exper- the experience the the socializing what 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 was it that that grabbed your attention that you tried to replicate in the intervention later what was it about the camps that you think really affected the kids well i mean the 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 camps really uh, tried to kind of foster you know different principles um, if i do recall correctly i believe that hope was was one of those principles and, and this varies across the camping programs that we mm-hmm. went to um, but, you know, they get them involved in various um, social activities um, to keep their mind off of, you know, the medical illness that they're, they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, um, so in a way, it was, it was just focusing their attention elsewhere, really. Were there, were there specific things? Am I correct in saying that? I mean, it was just really not to, not to trivialize or minimize it, but obviously if you have one of these conditions that it, it takes, you know, the spotlight in your life, I would imagine, especially as a kid, you know, it can kind of steal the, the fun out of being a kid, yep, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, and so is it just a matter of, of finding ways to, to allow those kids to be kids and to take that out of the spotlight as, a, as opposed to specifically saying, okay, well, these are the processes of setting goals and, and so on and so forth? Or? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, if you get into the specifics of, of hope, I mean, the, those specifics weren't really uh, capture during the experience. It was really just a way for kids to to enjoy themselves, enjoy life, socialize with other kids who may mm-hmm. be going through a very similar circumstance. Right. So is that what you pulled out of it to, to, to translate from that to the intervention for your pilot? Um, is that something you can talk about a little bit? Uh, and what what specific elements of the experience, the, the social experience at the camps, did you try to capture and, and use in your intervention? Ah, uh, great question. Um, you know, I think what I what I glean from that is is really just the essentials from positive psychology that there's so much more than the vulnerability aspect and and hope was something that I was familiar with. I'd worked with it before. There wasn't really a lot done in terms of um, psychological interventions that f- focus on hope as a target, and I think that's where. Um, I had started thinking about developing that even more because there wasn't literature on that. There mm-hmm. was one other study that had uh, used hope as an intervention target, but it was a single session intervention. And so mine wanted to kind of span out over a few different sessions and then look at that in the context of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was really just something that I was familiar with. Um, I thought that there was something that we needed to do with this particular construct. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And you said that it, it changed some of the outcomes. And, and again, for those who are, and I have to, you know, I have to act as a bit of a proxy for all of our audience, of course. Mm-hmm. So there may be some people who are not familiar with why you don't take the results of a pilot study too much to heart. 
Uh, maybe actually, w- would you like to talk about that a little bit more uh, before I ask about the results of the pilot study? But why? Um, what differentiates a pilot study from a larger, say, like a clinical trial or, or something like that? Uh, well, uh, pilot studies can can certainly be clinical trials, um, but pilot studies are usually you know a smaller number of participants, so it may not be fully representative of a population, and it can lead to imprecise you know, estimates in terms of what exactly may occur during a full-blown clinical trial. So that's why you do these pilot studies to determine, is there a signal of an effect? Um, Can we use the results and be able to kind of grow upon that into a full-blown clinical trial? So it's really just kind of an initial step to determine, is this even worthwhile to be able to Mm -hmm. pursue? So for those, we we were talking prior to uh, this conversation about social media and, and the current climate. So for, for those who are out there looking for evidence, uh, empirical evidence to support their beliefs, uh, maybe that'd be a good indication that pilot studies aren't where you, you know, it's not the, the basket that you want to put all of your eggs in to, to support your confirmation right. bias. <laughs> right. And, and essentially, you, you would want more than one study to right. be able to, you want to replicate findings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so but you did um, now. Now that we've cleared the air on that, uh, you did mention that with some of the the QST, the quantitative sensory testing, and we've had other guests that have talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's it's probably important to to discuss why that's important, and maybe even a little bit of details. You said with heat pain sensitivity that changed over the course of of mm-hmm. this intervention um, between your groups. Maybe uh, we should take just a moment and talk about quantitative sensory testing, maybe just in, in hone in right on heat, because that's the one that you, that you brought up. Um, what's the process? How is it done? And, and how do you interpret those differences? What, what changed in, in these uh, study participants as a result of the intervention? Well, um, so for, for quantitative sensory testing, you can, you can do this in so many different ways. There's a lot of different modalities. You can assess um, uh, the experience of heat pain sensitivity. You can look at um, uh, cold pain sensitivity. We generally, we can do that with placing their hand in a bath of cold water, and there's other methods of which to assess that as well. Uh, pressure pain sensitivity, so using an algometer, applying painful pressure to various sites on the body. And and generally what we've done in the laboratory is we assess not only their their uh, you know their perception of pain, so their pain rating, and we usually use a numerical rating scale for that, mm-hmm. so a zero to one hundred numerical rating scale. Um, but then we can also assess thresholds and, and tolerances. Uh, threshold is the the point at which people first experience pain, mm-hmm. and tolerance is um, the maximum amount that they can tolerate. Mm-hmm. So there, and there's various metrics that you can examine in terms of this paradigm. So with these participants, what changed in, in their heat pain sensitization? So we found that heat pain tolerance changed from pre to post, and there was a, a significant difference between um, people who were in the HOPE intervention as compared to pain education. So we found that people with um, who were involved in the HOPE intervention, they actually experienced less heat pain sensitivity, so higher heat pain tolerance from pre to post. Okay. And we also found some differences in various psychological measures, such as pain catastrophizing, so that also reduced 
from um, pre to post for the HOPE intervention. And then HOPE obviously uh, increased as well. And you've mentioned catastrophizing a few times now. What uh, Explain that for everybody, if you could. What is pain catastrophizing? So pain catastrophizing is, um, it, it comprises various components. It's where an individual may magnify or distort the pain experience. They may ruminate, so have excessive thoughts regarding pain. Um, they also may feel helpless in regards to pain as well. It's probably one of the most, um, I would say, robust predictors of pain and disability um, and very heavily studied mm -hmm. um, cognitive process. Is that, a, is that a normal point or a normal aspect of pain in, in, in recovery? Um, or is it something where if, if someone is catastrophizing at all over their pain that they've strayed from a, a healthy trajectory? Or is, it, is, is there a point where like, well, okay, this is, this is a, what we would expect, mm -hmm. but beyond this point, now that's bad? Or is, is all of pain catastrophizing uh, unhealthy? Um, you know, I think that it's, it, it, it could be normal in terms of people having, you know, negative thoughts regarding pain. Um, but there is a point to where it becomes excessive and where it can actually impede adaptive pain outcomes. We talked uh, with Dr. Roger Fillingham uh, very early on, our first episode ever, and and he uh, he conveyed his favorite descriptor of chronic pain, which is pain that's outlived its usefulness. Mm -hmm. But from a psychological standpoint, pain uh, does have some kind of, and I'm not a psychologist, so please Feel free, of course, to correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if pain has, uh, from a psychological standpoint, a protective uh, evolutionary purpose mm -hmm. in that, well, if you do something that, that has injured you, that's harmed you in some way, uh, it might be safe, at least for a time while you're recovering, to, to not repeat that activity or, or find yourself in that situation again. Mm -hmm. um, so is that also a little bit of cat catastrophizing if you think, well... You know, um, if rumination, for example, um, say you, uh, you, you're a little kid and you touch a hot stove and that stove is red. So mm -hmm. from that point on, you, you've, you know, maybe gone through that memory a couple times in your head and, and you avoid touching red things in general, whether they're stovetops or not. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to have some kind of protective, you know, component to it. Absolutely. Um, so is that, uh, I'm, would it be safe to say then by that rationale, a little bit of catastrophizing might not be the worst thing? Yeah, again, I think it depends on the level or degree of mm -hmm. catastrophizing that one experiences. I mean, we, uh, whenever we talk to, to participants that come into the laboratory and go through our, our studies, you know, we, we tell them that, that pain is very adaptive and, 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 you know, echoing what you just said. Um, it has a survival mechanism to it. Mm -hmm. You certainly wouldn't want to um, touch a hot stove and keep touching it, right? Because right. then you're you're going to injure yourself. Um, it also alerts you when danger is present. If you step on a piece of glass, then you don't want to keep stepping on it. So it alerts you when something has happened, when there's damage. Um, I I think probably the maybe the the biggest point here is. <clears throat> Maybe a, a little bit of those thoughts regarding um, the, the threat value of pain may be helpful, but, but um, there comes a point to where if you're ruminating constantly or you're catastrophizing, you're magnifying the experience, 
a lot to where it's impairing things for you. You're mm -hmm. not able to engage in adaptive behaviors, mm -hmm. adaptive self-management behaviors. The thoughts are encompassing your life um, a lot to where you're not able to, to focus on other things. Mm -hmm then that is problematic and that's where catastrophizing um, is maladaptive. So so maybe like the difference between a fear and a phobia, for example, like I have a, if I'm on a tightrope, I would have a fear of falling. But if I have a, a phobia of heights where I can't even be in, you know, the on a balcony somewhere, well, that's different and it's maybe a little bit more irrational. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's a, a an irrational component at, at some point to the catastrophizing where Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you said, but that's also predictive um, with chronic pain. So um, am I correct in saying then that people that, that rate high on catastrophizing scales, then you can say, well, the, these people are, are perhaps more prone to chronic pain states? Uh, Is that what you, you mean you by do, that? You do see a relationship between, uh, you know, chronic pain, various chronic pain outcomes and pain catastrophizing. It's associated with um, adverse outcomes, such as um, people who catastrophize tend to have higher pain severity. Uh, they tend to have lower quality of life. Um, they're more disabled by their pain, have um, lower functional performance, functional capacity. Mm -hmm. um, amidst a lot of other different outcomes, you also see it highly correlated with um, anxiety, depression, um, other negative psychological variables as well. And, and in, in the context of resilience, you do see it um, also inversely uh, correlated. And at least we found that in, in our particular studies that catastrophizing is inversely correlated to, um, you know, positive affect, optimism, um, other positive psychological variables such as those. So if we springboard from the the work that you did on hope to where you are now with resilience, mm -hmm. um, what what's the the main focus of your work now? Um, in a, but of course, uh, you know, a, a recent publication or even just your interest where you, you did a really fantastic job of, of, you know, laying a foundation for what got you to where you are now. What how are you then building upon that? What what's the focus now? So I, I would guess there's probably two lines of research that I'm really targeting right now. One is the development of clinical interventions that are based upon um, this concept of resilience. So we have um, two clinical trials ongoing right now. One is with older adults with chronic low back pain. And so we have developed a group-based seven-session intervention that is focused on augmenting certain resources of resilience, um, such as um, positive affect and emotion, um, pain acceptance, self-efficacy, and um, and hopeful thinking. And so we, we take participants and then we engage them in various activities that are focused on those four concepts. So that seems to be based on, you know, of course, A, resilience is a good thing, and mm -hmm. the more resilience, the better. But it seems as if um, either you're under the impression or you've realized that that you can change people's resiliences. Mm -hmm. So uh, how, how effective... Um, is it to is it are some of these methods I guess of improving resilience and is it dependent upon age? Is this a you know a can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing or uh, is there a developmental stage that that trying to affect resilience seems to be more effective or it takes uh, takes root a little bit better? Yeah, that that's a that's a great question. I, I don't feel like there is an age limit on increasing people's capacity for growth. 
Um, so uh, in, in terms of looking at you know, these types of interventions in the context of age that hasn't been done because there hasn't been a lot of uh, various um, intervention paradigms that have been developed. There's just been a small handful of studies that have focused on um, promoting resilience through kind of positive psychology concepts. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we're really, in terms of the field, we're really in its infancy in terms of kind of understanding the processes that are involved and um, whether these interventions are viable uh, for various chronic pain populations. For what you've seen so far, how, um, and understanding, of course, like you just said, this is still pretty early on, but uh, is there any indication of how permanent um, some of these changes are? If if you get someone and and they go through, you said a, a seven seven. For for our particular study, we have they go through seven sessions. Okay, so seven sessions. Let's mm -hmm. let's say a person comes in for seven sessions, and just speaking hypothetically, of course, because this is on. I assume this is ongoing right now. Are you yes. Still, okay. Mm -hmm. So you haven't had the opportunity to follow up and and see how they are a year later, but Correct. what. What do you think, um, based on, is, is anybody else doing this work? Do you have any, any basis to say, well, we think that this, this might be a, a pretty permanent change in people, or is it dependent upon continuing sessions? Uh, so, first of all, the, again, there's only been a small handful of studies, and the long-term follow-up to look at sustainability of effects uh, hasn't really been done. Uh, for the handful of studies that have been done focusing on various positive activity interventions, they have found significant effects in certain variables over a period of three months. Okay. But to look at the sustainability over a longer period of time, such as one year, hasn't really been done. And again, this only we only see these effects on certain variables and, and it really does depend on the outcome of interest for the particular right. study as well. But three months, I mean, that seems to be impactful if, uh, especially if you take into account that, that chronic pain seems to often result from acute pain that doesn't go away. Not mm -hmm. always, of course. Um, but if you think about it, you know, a lot of times th there are plenty of, of conditions that you can, especially acute conditions that you can recover from over a few months mm -hmm. and maybe get past that point where the pain lingers and turns into something else. Um, so is this possible that an intervention like this could be implemented when somebody breaks a leg or has a back surgery or um, goes through cancer treatment that's uh, you know shorter term cancer treatment? There's a point where you could say, okay, well, as part of your treatment, you're doing all of these other things to, to manage your pain as mm -hmm. you recover. This is something that we also recommend that you do at, say, at this stage as you're weaning off of, you know, another treatment or something like that to, to increase the likelihood that your pain will not transition into a chronic pain state. Is that something that, that you envision? Absolutely. And that's actually a, a future direction of work that I would like to transition to in, in some point. Okay. Mm -hmm. you're, you're welcome. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, no that's, that's, that, I think that's really fascinating because we talk a lot, um, or I've, I've talked a lot with our guests and, and even amongst pain research, because this is relatively new for me also, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, applied kinesiologist and physiologist. And so, you know, focusing that lens within pain and aging is is relatively new for me. So I, I love to hear about all of these different approaches to pain treatment. But there are still some people who, you know, their research is at a point where it's like, well, this this is great. And we think we see this and it may 
someday be used for whatever. But this seems like mm-hmm. it's it's much closer to a you know a translational and, and clinical application um, as far as treatments go. And I think that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I I think it would be certainly beneficial for people who do, like you said, you know, have maybe an acute pain experience and then or going through a, a surgical procedure and being able to um, target certain concepts, mm-hmm. um, intervene ahead of time. So maybe that recovery process um, is a little bit easier for them. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's. Uh... And maybe you can answer this, but if there's if there's any research into you know the the point where people are most vulnerable in their pain experience, um, in in maybe deviating from that healthy recovery from acute pain, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and I know that there's a lot of pain phenotyping uh, research, and we had Dr. Cruz Almeida on, um, but understanding how different groups experience pain, mm-hmm. uh, maybe taking it another level to say, okay, well. Not only are these groups at higher risk for developing chronic pain, but this is specifically when they're at that highest risk. And then maybe that's a point for for this type of intervention to occur. Yeah, um, I'm not really certain on uh, the literature in in that particular area. But I do know, I mean, you're speaking about precision medicine, Mm -hmm. uh, which I I do think is uh, an important kind of avenue in terms of um, where pain research is going and being able to phenotype various groups, looking at those various characteristics that may be predictive of how people do during treatment. What are those characteristics that are going to be most applicable to the treatments that you are applying to them? Um, So I think that's kind of an important future direction. Yeah, it's got to be a little bit more difficult from a a psychological perspective because there's so much variation. So, you know, Mm -hmm. physiologically, when we talk about acute pain, well, we know from a point where there's some kind of tissue damage or in in some cases the the possibility of tissue damage. But let's, let's stay on a specific event that is an acute injury, it causes damage, and then physiologically we know pretty well what happens after that, you know, mm-hmm. with regard to some of the chemical signaling that, that occurs and, and the, the process of, of rebuilding and scar formation, for example. And, and we know the stages, uh, even, even um, maybe somewhat recently, um, you know, differences in inflammatory stages mm-hmm. and how important they are. Um, and you can you talk about precision medicine, you can, as a result of that, allow some of those processes that are supposed to take place, even if they are somewhat uncomfortable, to occur to ensure a full recovery, or at least as, as full a recovery as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine it's a little bit more difficult on the psychological response to pain and, and injury, but I wonder if, if there are certain stages, you know, whether it's coping stages or whatnot, that would that would help to target some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't see why not. I mean, and and also, you know, is you can also look at like readiness to change. Um, <clears throat> are, are people uh, wanting to engage in those types of you know therapies? Are they ready to? Mm-hmm. So uh, it becomes complex because you you do have a lot of different. Um, coping processes, psychological processes that you would have to kind of factor mm-hmm. in that. Yeah. And it seems like the, the mistakes that have been made in medicine tend to arise from, you know, one pill for any malady, mm-hmm. you know, it's, oh, this, you know, there, you have this, so I'm going to give you a, you have the flu. So here's an antibiotic, 
discipline that may not actually have any effect and could have negative side effects that that make you worse off. Um, with with interventions like this, can you think of anything that that might be? Uh, and I think this is a stretch after hearing you describe the interventions and in, in self-efficacy and hope and and and. Um, but is there anything that you could think of as maybe a negative outcome for for these types of therapies that you would have to be cautious of? Um, you know, there's no, there's not a huge risk effect from these types of activities. Uh, most of the time, we're we're trying to boost positive emotions, uh, so you can probably you know uh, appreciate that you know that really is not going to have a lot of harm associated right. with it. Although interestingly. Um, there are these some of these positive um, activity interventions, resilience-based interventions, which they did find has had um, a negative impact on certain populations, such as individuals who had major depression and suicidality. Mm. So you, you do have to think, be very mindful about the population that you're you're working with, and the outcomes that you're interested in, because. Um, there, there could be setbacks mm -hmm. uh, depending on what that particular cohort is. What do you um, can can you detail a little bit of what happens in those populations and why you need to be cautious with this type of, of therapy or, or intervention? Um, what what effect does it have differently on them than it would um, maybe somebody who's not depressed or or suicidal? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm trying to to recall. This was um this was some research that I had heard at the International Positive Psychology Association and um they had talked about how they had brought these individuals in with depression and and I I think through through the activities it had actually in, increased hopelessness um and, but I I could be um recalling sure, that incorrectly, sure, sure. but I do recall that it specifically had a negative impact on individuals who were high in suicidality, but I'd have to go back to the original mm -hmm. paper to um, investigate that a little bit further. Well, but, I it, mean, it just speaks to, it, you do have to, you know, be thoughtful about, you know, what types of processes you're trying to boost uh, with these therapeutic paradigms, um, resilience paradigms, and um, what type of effect that will have on your populations of yeah. interest. Yeah, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with that. I understand, um, and I hope that, that all of our listeners and, and followers do as well, that you you know, you know, don't have all of this information on hand all the time. It would be impossible. You just need to know where <laughs> and how to find it and when to look for it. But, mm -hmm. but I do appreciate you um, commenting on that. So also, um, and I, I we kind of hinted and, and teased around this a little bit earlier, but um, so let's let's look at the flip side of that. There are, there are populations where you, you need to be considerate of, of applying positive psychology. Mm -hmm. What populations does this really stick with? I asked about age earlier, but are, are there other, you know, subgroups or demographics where this is a, a particularly effective treatment? Yeah, so these positive psychology interventions have been used across um, a wide variety of uh, various groups um, to enhancing uh, work productivity, uh, reducing absenteeism. Um, so you're getting more into the kind of um, I.O. side of things. Um, what do you mean by I.O.? Industrial organizations. So looking at various organizations and how you can boost productivity um, and also, you know, positive relationships amongst co-workers. Um, it's also been used in the school system. So, um, you know, boosting pr 
productivity and um, positive emotions in, in children as well. Um, but then also various conditions. So um, I'm trying to think of other medical populations that it's been um, used with. Um, uh, Judith uh, Moskowitz um, has been using a lot of these uh, uh, therapeutic interventions for various populations as well. Uh, I, I believe um, HIV has been one of them. Um, you can also use it on, you know, traumatic ex people with traumatic experiences. So uh, the list goes on and on. It's it's been used quite heavily, although you don't see it very much in chronic pain yet. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and this is early on, but it seems to be the uh, the the in vogue approach now is to look at combined therapies. Are there other mm -hmm. types of therapies, psychological interventions or otherwise, that you think that this might be particularly effective in combination with, where you, where you maybe with with the positive psychology interventions along with something else get a, a synergistic approach or mm -hmm. a synergistic result rather that that's better than the sum of the parts. Yeah, um, just speculating, of course. Yeah, th this is actually kind of an, another area of interest for my uh, for me is to kind of look at resilience across these various kind of multi-system processes, uh, which has an uh, intervention interface to it as well. Mm -hmm. So um, looking at, so the question is, you know, do these positive psychology interventions, do they hold up alone to be a standalone therapy for people with chronic pain? Or should we be integrating them within existing types of therapeutic treatments, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, maybe mindfulness meditation or physical therapy? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would anticipate that um, these types of therapies would probably fare better if they were already integrated within an existing treatment that we also know produces some um, adaptive benefits for mm -hmm. people with chronic pain. But these are things that still need to be parsed out. And without me really having a firm understanding, as I'm not a clinical psychologist, of, of the specifics of the interventions and whatnot, they're, they're occurring in a room like we are now, I assume, where you're talking and, and sorting through feelings and emotions and memories and maybe visualizations. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to wonder, you know, say with a, a physical therapy perspective, for example, um, being able to, if, if self-efficacy and, and hope for a positive outcome are features of, of this intervention, if coupling the awareness of that possibility and, and instead of visualization, actually having some kind of, you know, physical outcome where you say, okay, well... I know that you can do this. It's important mm -hmm. that you know that you can do this. And then putting them in a situation to succeed in doing that, even if it's in small incremental steps, mm -hmm. do you think that that might um, augment the effect? Yes, absolutely. That's, uh, so in addition to that, what else? Um, you, know, you, you talked about precision medicine and, and phenotyping and whatnot. Uh, I, I like to, to conclude our conversations as often as possible with, you know, looking just over the horizon. What, what do you think is next specifically with resilience in, in, in this type of intervention, specifically with pain and pain treatment and pain research? It, it doesn't have to be necessarily that, you know, a breakthrough in a treatment, but, but what's just over the horizon? What, what comes next for you looking ahead? Uh, so I guess one kind of avenue is, really trying to look at, you know, the feasibility and acceptability of these interventions. Um, are they viable? Can we move the needle a bit on um, pain-related outcomes? 
And then, uh, you know, also comparing these to existing treatments, um, which one is going to have the more robust effects on the outcomes of interest? And like we talked about before, can we possibly intervene at a very critical time point to where we are essentially producing better pain outcomes um, longitudinally? So, uh, you know, integrating maybe brief resilience-based interventions. So I think that's one avenue. Another one is that I've been working on is trying to understand exactly what this concept of resilience is, mm -hmm. which in general, when we think about resilience, it's kind of this adaptability to stress and adversity. But the definition really does vary across various fields and disciplines. And in most cases, what we found in the literature is that um, resilience has um, been defined as a trait-based concept, which ignores the malleability of mm -hmm. resilience, and it takes away from being able to intervene on it if it's a pure disposition. Right. Um, resilience has also been defined in terms of mechanisms that promote kind of adaptive, um, you know, pain beliefs, psychological beliefs. Um, it's also been defined in terms of outcomes. So whether um, people recover from whatever adversity they're experiencing, whether they um, have sustainability, so they still engage in life goals, mm -hmm. or whether they experience a sense of growth from whatever stress or adversity. Um, so did they gain meaning from whatever that experience was? But what we find in the literature is that when, when people look at resilience, they'll look at one mechanism, mm -hmm. um, and which usually focuses on psychological processes such as self-efficacy or positive affect. And what we're trying to do um, with our research is look at resilience from a multi-system perspective, because we know that human beings um, are very complex, um, and they're shaped by, you know, psychological physical, um, various behavioral factors. We know that, you know, exercise and sleep are advantageous for mm -hmm. pain outcomes. Also looking at the social atmosphere of what a person lives in, um, various biological um, processes, and looking at the synergy of those various domains and how they interact with one another. So um, what we're trying to do is capture what resilience is by looking at all these various factors that contribute to uh, resilient functioning. That seems like a pretty big task. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, we're, we're um, at the very beginning stages of that, but very excited. Um, I'm also working with a colleague, uh, Dr. Kimberly Sibyl, um and Amber Brooks from Wake Forest, mm -hmm. and uh, we're trying to develop a resilience index that can be used clinically, mm -hmm. um, but then thinking about all these various factors that contribute to a resilient capacity. Yeah, we've, um, so we had Dr. Starbooker on uh, previously, and we actually modeled some of our work that we're, that we're currently undertaking on some of your work in, in, in trying to characterize, in our case, it's movement-evoked pain mm -hmm. as opposed to resilience, but using some of the same methodology to, to from an observational perspective to see if, if you can really kind of find domains uh, and at, le at least for us as a step toward developing an index uh, of movement-evoked pain. But I, I think that that stuff is really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's easy to 
you know, from particularly from a non-academic perspective, when you think of research to really hone in on, you know, this magic pill or this magic intervention, but mm-hmm. really just some some observational work in looking at, you know, what is because you can't really affect something you know, very well if you don't understand what it is and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the characteristics of it. So I think that's really fascinating work. Um, but thank you for coming on and, and sharing some of what you're doing now and, and certainly educating me. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that I'm, you know, maybe somewhere in the middle of the road as far as our listeners. So if I learned something, you know, at least half of the people listening uh, <laughs> did also. Hopefully so. Yeah. yeah. Thank um, you. So is there a, do you have a, a, a website for your, for your lab or anything that, uh, that if people are interested in, either, um, you know, participating in research or just learning more about what you've done, uh, where they could find some of that information? I have a faculty webpage, but not a specific page designated for my lab. That is on the to-do list, though. Okay. Well, we can, we can <laughs> certainly share that. And by the, time, uh, by the time we get done with this video, we'll, we'll have that right at the, you know, at the bottom of the screen. Um, Excellent. But again, thank you so much for, for sharing some of your time with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.